This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. So, how are you guys? Great. You're hungry. I'm hungry. Yeah. I'm sleepy. Okay. <laughs> I'm grumpy, so we're like three so out of seven dwarves. I Is was hungry about to say the three stooges. Okay. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Sorry, everyone. I apologize in advance. I'm going to be dumb. Wow. Well. <laughs> Those are the... Was sleepy one? Sleepy... Yeah, sleepy, dopey. I said sleepy, snopey. Grumpy. It's dopey. Snopey. Snopey. Let's go with snopey. All right. So. Okay. Part two? We're in part two of The Cost is Fucked Up. Uh, I'm Priya Hubbard. I'm Jessica Borges. And I'm Keith Burke. I feel like we all said our names with question marks at the end. Yeah. I am not really sure who I am. (laughs) None of us know who we are. (laughs) I'm Ron Burgundy. Yes. All right, guys. We have kind of a rough one today, so we're going to... (laughs) I mean, I would say sorry to you, but I'm more sorry to these people. Yeah. So we're going to get started, but remember, these stories are really important. That's why we're doing it. And we just joke about it so we don't cry all the time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. For this one, we do have to give our necessary content warning that there will be discussions in this episode of suicide, depression, and other mental illness. And before we get going, we want to provide avenues of support if you or someone you know needs it or wants it. Online, you can find the Suicide Prevention Line website at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. They have a chat feature on their landing page. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And if you or someone you know is more of like a phone call person, really want to speak to someone, they have numbers available for Spanish speaking or the hard of hearing And for all others, there's a general number, which is 1-800-273-8255. So, I mean, wherever you are in your life, if you need it, it's there. Yeah, don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah. And people around, be aware of other people that may need help and don't, are too afraid to ask. Yeah, maybe use this as a moment to just reach out to your friends. Check in, yeah. Yeah. You should always check in with people. Yeah. Because even the people that are the happiest cannot sometimes be the most depressed on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is true. So also in this episode, there will be discussions of sexual assault. So we also want to provide avenues of support for this if it's needed or wanted. And online, you can find the RAIN Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network website at www.rainn.org. They have a chat feature as well on their landing page. But if you prefer to speak with someone in person, their hotline is 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. So, with that, Jess is going to give us a little recap of where we've been. Yes. So, where we left off from last week, Priya had spoken with Sandra Westerville and Kim Cook for the previous episode, and this one. Sandra is a professor 
Emerita of Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, which is a retired professor who is so awesome that she gets to keep her title of professor even though she's retired. And Kim, who is a professor of sociology and criminology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She also does incredible work in restorative justice. So, because little is known about what happens when when an exoneree walks out of prison, Sandra and Kim have been dedicating decades to studying and writing about the post-exoneration process and the exonerees. And we have been disseminating some of their research as well as looking into how much it costs taxpayers to wrongfully imprison a person for decades. This was the crux of the last episode. For this episode, we're going to jump right in. Okay, so this is another rough one, and I'm just going to go straight into it. On August 10th, 1984, the body of a woman was found. This poor woman had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. A witness told police that he had seen the victim with a black man on the morning before she had been murdered. That witness tentatively ID'd a man named Daryl Hunt, who was black, as the man who had been with the victim. Another eyewitness identified another man who couldn't have done it. And when pressed by the police, that witness changed his story and said that he'd seen Daryl instead. There were also other eyewitnesses. And then there was Daryl's girlfriend, who at the time was ostensibly arrested due to outstanding charges against her. But more likely, she was arrested to get something out of her. Sure enough, she told the police that Daryl had confessed to her that he had murdered the victim, the poor woman. Daryl had maintained his innocence throughout. But nevertheless, he was tried for first-degree murder. Some of the eyewitnesses testified that they'd seen Daryl with the victim or later covered in blood. But Daryl testified that he was A, innocent, and B, did not know the victim. So obviously, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison because... Well, he said he didn't even know the victim? No. Okay. It was possible at his trial, he had an all-white jury, but there are differing reports on this. So, a friend of Daryl's, a guy named Larry Little, believed that Daryl was innocent. When Daryl was convicted, note the only reason he was not on death row is because there was one lone holdout on the jury, and that juror saved his life. But when Oh, he, that they wouldn't give the death penalty, but they'd agree to first-degree murder? Right. Okay. Well, it, it's first-degree murder. Oh, and, and if a state has a death penalty, you can choose to pursue it as a capital case and they chose to pursue it as a capital case so they tried it as a capital case but one juror said yes he should have life in prison but not not the death penalty and so that person literally (laughs) saved Saved his life yeah yeah but when he was convicted the black community was fucking pissed and rightfully so in the court of public opinion the white people thought he was guilty the black people thought he was innocent it seemed that the The same held true for his life in prison. This was a very racially charged case. And because he was this black man. What city was this in? Winston-Salem. Also, why is it hyphenated? Could they just not decide? Yeah. They got married. Oh. (laughs) Congratulations, Winston and Salem. (laughs) So it's racially charged, not only in Winston-Salem, but also including his life in prison because he was this black man who allegedly sexually assaulted and killed a young, successful white woman. Daryl told Larry that he was a target for not only the guards, but the skinheads at the prison. So like the neo-Nazis. Yeah. After five years in prison, Daryl's conviction was overturned because prosecutors had presented Daryl's ex-girlfriend's statement that he had confessed to her that he'd murdered the victim. But what they failed to mention is that the ex-girlfriend actually recanted her statement prior to the trial, but they presented the statement anyway. We're just going to leave that out. Yeah. Yeah. So, decided like, oh, let's just keep see, it because you did say it. that just makes me think like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Right. Like, 
you're so desperate to win your case that like you're willing to ruin a man's life who possibly is innocent and like your your star witness is like yeah that's not true what i said right but you're but still willing to go through story, with it because it fits the story and the narrative that you've created like what's wrong with you what's yeah. what's going on in that head that you're like this is okay so they presented the statement anyway because they're really fucking great people congratulations to everybody on the team but Daryl wasn't a free man. He was released on bond while he awaited a new trial. And as per usual, he was offered a plea deal. He could have time served and not spend another day in prison if he would just plead guilty. But of course, he refused because he's fucking innocent. I don't know how I'd handle that. And if I were in that situation, I think I would just be so like afraid to go back to be like, whatever, fine. Well, he refused. But then also my pride would be like, but I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why do I have to like commit to anything? And you have to be realistic of like, do I actually have a fighting chance up against them? So he was retried before an all-white jury. Now, I wrote again because it may have been again. Some accounts have this being a second all-white jury. It could have been the first. But even if it's the first, I submit that Daryl Hunt very much did not have a jury of his peers. But in this trial... In addition to some eyewitnesses, there were some jailhouse informants that had come out of the woodwork. Quick sidebar, it's truly astounding how many similarities all of these cases have. It's almost as if there's an entire broken system. Almost. Almost. Someone should do a podcast about it. Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Daryl was convicted for the second time and sentenced to life in prison. During all of this time... Okay. Carry on. (laughs) (laughs) So during all of this time, the SBI had compiled a report that was thousands of pages long. The trial court had opted not to review it. The judge ordered the state to hand over the SBI report and then sealed the report so no one could read it. Despite numerous requests from Daryl's attorneys, efforts to get the report unsealed were denied. Because why on fucking earth would you need to show a defense attorney thousands of pages of information about an investigation into the lawyer's client? Yeah, and in that's this case, necessary, right? Right. Yeah. And in this case, an innocent guy. Yeah. Like, okay. Daryl's attorneys, Mark Rabel and Ben Dowling Sender, tried another tack and requested DNA testing on a semen sample found on the victim because Ben had found that the FBI had more evidence than they were revealing, including the semen sample. Apparently, prior to this, they had claimed that the sample was too degraded to test. Sounds familiar. Daryl's attorneys argued that there was witness tampering and that this was evidence that the FBI was clearly concealing. The judge disagreed with them that there was fuckery going on for whatever fucked up reason. But amazingly enough, he did allow for testing of the semen sample, which is great. Right? One would, oh, well, I would think right, but apparently you're about to tell me wrong. I'm scared you're gonna. We're on episode eight. I'm I'm used to being excited and then (laughs) someone pees in my Cheerios. Yeah. (laughs) So in October 1994, the test results came back and Daryl was not a match to the sample. What? So. Oh, I know where this is going. The victim's mother, who had already been put through the fucking ringer in the first trial, and then again in the second one, begged that there not be a third trial because like these people go through so much shit physically exhausting and especially your child like the you know rape and murder of my child yeah reliving that and you know they have to go into such graphic detail in in trial traumatizing it's not just reopening wounds it's like putting salt and lemon juice and and making them bigger 
Tabasco sauce. So the judge refused to exonerate Daryl, saying that the case was only somewhat weakened by this new evidence and believed that Daryl could still be guilty. Right, because, oh, he just had sex with her. Ugh, that's... Well, no, because the DNA sample... Oh, it didn't match. Yeah, It didn't match. You didn't have sex with her, but you still killed her. Right. That's that's the logic? No, I don't... Whatever the logic is, it's fucked up. Yeah. So Daryl's attorneys appealed... And the appeals were rejected because somehow a non-match of DNA still did not prove innocence. And they kept appealing and they kept getting denied. How do you like maintain hope through all of this? I, I think no- a lot about Greg Taylor too, because he went through the same, just denied, denied, denied. Yeah. But like, even when you ha- know that there's evidence that could free you, how do you have this like ability to just keep on fighting and keep on getting shut down? Right. God. It's heartbreaking. Well, in February 2003, it had been 19 years since Daryl was convicted. Jesus. And 10 years after he'd actually proved his innocence, but inexplicably was still in prison. Daryl's attorneys requested that that semen sample be run through the state database. And it was. It did match with another man who ended up confessing to the crime. This man, Willard Brown, was allegedly in prison at the time of the murder. And according to the movie, The Trials of Daryl Hunt, Daryl's attorney, Mark Rabel, found out that Brown had actually been released from prison prior to the murder. It also turns out that Brown may have had another victim, one who survived. He also found out that police may have coerced her into not pressing charges against Brown for some unknown reason. And evidence of that crime was destroyed by the police. The DA tried to delay Daryl's release for whatever reason, like the seemingly normal, and that's with quotes, normal, reason, that they simply had their man and law enforcement chose to be myopic and not look beyond that, despite evidence to the contrary. So, with overwhelming evidence that Daryl was innocent, Daryl was released from prison on Christmas Eve in 2003. But of course, he had to go before a judge again six weeks later and prove his innocence again. The judge dismissed the case with prejudice, and Daryl Hunt was finally exonerated in 2004. Daryl was pardoned and awarded a state payment of $300,000. My understanding of this, it was 2003. I think that they didn't have the 50000 per year oh, in play. Oh, I was going to say, why time. is it so low? Right. For, 20, I, I, for almost 20 years in prison. Right. I think that they just had a different amount that was allocated at that point in time. Okay. So Daryl then sued the city of Winston-Salem and received a settlement of over $1.6 million. Seems like he should still get more than that, though. Because you got, like, you were innocent and they went after you again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you ended up in jail for another 10 years for something you didn't do. Should be like a double fuck you, like 16 million out of zero. It's interesting to note that every single case we've covered has been settled. In that way, the system is protected and does not have to admit culpability. The Innocence Projects and the Center on Actual Innocence and all of these efforts are making a difference by showing law enforcement and the public that there are actual real people who are in prison who are actually innocent, which is going to go a long way towards helping these injustices, especially considering that prosecutors will sometimes do press conferences. Well, we just didn't have enough evidence which puts doubt in the public's minds about the exonerated because the prosecutor is basically saying this person is guilty as fuck, but they were able to get out on a technicality. And since we're taught in society to trust the words of prosecutors, we believe that the person is guilty. Yeah, they should be forced to go out there and say, 
hey, we fucked up. Like, this person's innocent and sorry. My bad. Yeah. Yeah, you were talking about the oops truck earlier. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself that we were going to get to this section because one of the things that Kim had told me is really a public apology could go a long fucking way. Totally. I know what. Sad. Think about it this way, too. If you return to the place where you once lived, your community, people may recognize you for the crime that you were convicted of, not as a person who was exonerated of that crime. Right. These people have already played judge, juror, and executioner in their minds. Sandra and Kim referenced the woman who was wrongfully accused of killing her own child. She was convicted of that horrible, horrible crime. And it made headlines, of course. Everyone in her community knew about it. And when she was exonerated, she returned to her hometown, and most people believed she was a heinous monster. How and she also, like, sorry to interrupt, mm. but she also wasn't able to mourn the death of her own child. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, it's so sad. Like in the Leslie Lincoln case, yeah. where she's not able to mourn her own mother because she's busy, like, fighting for her life. Trying to herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, this poor woman was convicted of killing her own child, and now her community is like, oh, yeah, you're a child killer. Right. That's fucked up. Yeah. Yes, it's super fucked up. How can an, an exoneree re-enter their community when they're wearing a scarlet letter for whatever their supposed crime was? Facing an accusatory community can be an added stressor and increase the exoneree's internal frustration because they're fucking innocent. Mm-hmm. So. Well, yeah, it had to constantly every day be defending yourself like I didn't oh do God. anything. Yeah. I would never want to leave the house. <clears throat> nope. I I'm would like, move. Yeah. But some people don't have the means to move. Oh. That's the tricky thing. It's yeah. like. So, because I, that's my first thought too. It's like, just get out of get there. Get the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it also, it's also goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is like you, depending on how long you were in prison, like you have all these scary daily things that you're already up against to begin with. Never mind, like completely trying to figure out how to move. I don't know. I just think well, you it's probably easier familiar. said than done. Yeah. Right. So even if your surroundings, the place that you grew up in or whatever might be unfamiliar, because of like growth or gentrification or whatever the fuck thing happened, it's still somewhat familiar. Right. And I, I would think, I, I don't know, but I would think that you would want to, at least initially, until you can get your feet on the ground, yeah. be on familiar stomping grounds. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because everything's intimidating and scary. Right. Speaking of an exoneree's community, we've been talking a lot about the exoneree and the hell that they go through, but it's also important we discuss how the trauma and hardship of a wrongful conviction also affects the exoneree's family and loved ones. A few years ago, the Ella Baker Center on Human Rights and 22 other organizations across the country banded together to examine the effects on communities, families, and loved ones of people incarcerated in U.S. prisons. In September 2015, these organizations released a report entitled Who Pays? The True Cost of Incarceration on Families. Priya read this report and found for their research, they used trained community researchers to communicate with communities in 14 states. The goal is to understand the financial burden when a family member goes to jail or prison. They state that, quote, each year the United States spends $80 billion to lock away more than 2.4 million people in its jails and prisons. This has a huge impact on, quote, people who are already stigmatized, penalized, and punished. Four decades of unjust criminal justice policies have created a legacy of collateral impacts that last for generations and are felt most deeply by women, low-income families, and communities of color. If a family is already struggling financially before a family member goes to prison or jail, a sudden decline in income can break a family. 
It's not always possible to climb out of a financial hole created by the trial, appeals, et cetera, when a person's in prison. Because it's obviously going to be insane. Like all those costs add up. And when you're fighting for your life, you're not just going to, right? you know, you're going to put your money into defending yourself or whatever you need you're, to do. You're going to exhaust all of your resources. And if it's your Probably loved before one. before you even get to an appeal. Right. So it's a huge financial burden. But beyond the economics the book goes into going into prison, like attorney fees, fines, etc., there are additional charges, like paying for phone calls with the prisoner, or visitation charges, care packages, all that stuff. It all adds up. The high cost of maintaining contact with incarcerated family members led more than one in three families, which is 34%, into debt for paying for phone calls and visits alone, which you would think is like probably not that you much. You have to pay for a visit? Well, traveling states. and like oh, getting oh. there because, like, we talked about how you may not necessarily be in this in your same hometown. You may be hours away right. from where your loved ones are. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. Like, if I had a loved one in prison and I had to spend every weekend driving up there, I would. But where would I stay? I like I would want to stay the weekend, right? So I'd want to go to like a hotel or motel or like maybe even rent an apartment up yeah. there or relocate so yeah. but then what if they get right. moved again right exactly priya actually found in that report linked as a resource for an article called how private equity is turning public prisons into big profits which was written by tim reckworth on april 30th 2019 for the nation so recently yeah it illustrates that there's a whole lot of incentive for corporations that want to keep people incarcerated which is not surprising The author spoke to a woman named Eunice Story, whose 45-year-old son, James, had been in and out of Michigan's prisons for eight years. Eunice told Tim that you can't lift a finger without somebody profiting off of it. To keep costs low, she limited phone calls to her son to every Saturday morning, for which a company called Global Tellink charged her $3 for every 15 minutes, plus a $3.95 fee for simply putting money into the account. You put, she says, you put $15 on there, but you only get $10 worth of phone calls. If Eunice wanted to send an email, JPay, a privately owned company, charged her a starting rate of 25 cents per message. Eunice also ordered a secure care package from the Keefe Group. Not Keith. (laughs) K-E-E-F-E. Keefe Group. (laughs) It's like if you were to say Keith, but you had a lisp. Or if you were just drunk. Or that. (laughs) So you'll be hearing that shortly. (laughs) Eunice ordered a secure care package from the Keefe Group. Every couple of months, it cost her $85 plus a $2 handling fee. So she would also load $100 onto her son's Keefe commissary account, plus a fee of $2.95. fucking fees. <laughs> so stupid. So we could buy the necessities like toothpaste that cost $3.82 and deodorant that cost $3.49. Many Michigan families say these necessities aren't provided in sufficient quantities by the prison. Her son, who's diabetic would also have to use that money to pay for Corizon's $5 copays if he wanted to see a doctor. That's like in addition to, I'm sure, like all his diabetes medication, which is not cheap. Right. Like test strips and like all that, whatever they use to like test their blood sugar and all that. That's not cheap. So in addition to dealing with the loss of a loved one to the prison system, in addition to the court costs, fees, fines, whatever else you can possibly think of, if you want to communicate with your loved one in prison or if you want to try to make their life a little easier in there, it's going to cost you a fucking lot. Right. 
and not just financially. The report, Who Pays? The True Cost of Incarceration on Families, found that family members who are not able to talk or visit their loved ones regularly were much more likely to report experiencing negative health impacts related to the family member's incarceration. Families frequently reported post-traumatic stress disorder, nightmares, hopelessness, depression, and anxiety. Yet families have little institutional support for healing this trauma and becoming emotionally and financially stable during and post-incarceration. Kind of similar to like the the those that are incarcerated themselves when they're exonerated. It's just like... Well, there's also, a, I think there's a certain amount of guilt that you can't do anything to make it easier for them. You can't you feel, help them. And you feel hopeless and like you can't yeah. take care of your loved one. Like I, I would imagine I'd be Helpless. pretty ripped to shreds if I had a loved one that was in jail, in prison, and especially if I believe that they were innocent too. Oh my god! Yeah. Like I can imagine that there would be like negative mental and emotional you're going effects. Years and then mm-hmm. like ten years and then decades, and I can't even imagine going through it. And like if you have kids and you're like trying to support your household, which you previously had a dual income household potentially. Yeah. Now you're down to one. How the fuck do you pay rent? Do you have family around to help support you with the kids or what? I, yeah. It makes me, this, a lot of it makes me really fucking angry, but this part really fucking pissed me off. Yeah. You have innocent people that are dealing with this trauma that they weren't, I mean, how can you ever prepare for it? Obviously, but. It, a lot of times they have kids and they can't provide for them. It just impacts so m- I just think of it as like Dwayne Deaver or Brenda Bissett or like all of these people we're talking about in the crime lab where it's just like, oh, well, we made a mistake. Oopsie. But that, that mistake impacts so many people's lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's sad. It's very sad. Sorry. And it says, I have a little Ooh, sip of rose. Drink that rose. <laughs> Got a little heated there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. The report states that these impacts hit women of color and their families more substantially than others, deepening inequities and societal divides that have pushed many into the criminal justice system in the first place. Almost one in every four women and two of every five black women are related to someone who's incarcerated. The system, our system, is set up to keep people of color down. And that's super, super fucked up. Yeah, it's really fucked up. I mean, I'm, I'm really fucked up by how many people this affects. Yeah. Okay, but I'm just going to move into the next section. I'm going to calm down. <laughs> and... It can take a year to go from walking out of those prison doors to actually being pardoned. And an exoneree has to be pardoned in order to get the state allocated money. So. Oh, I thought that was like on your way out. No. Uh-uh. Oh, to, how is he supposed to. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what we're getting into. If an exoneree's record is not expunged or sealed, they can face real problems when trying to re-enter the workforce. The ubiquitous question that we've all heard mm-hmm. or had to answer, have you ever been convicted of a felony for the exoneree feels like a trick question. If they oh, say, right. Mm-hmm. Because right. you technically have, even if you're exonerated. Exactly. Right. If they say yes, they're being honest because they have been convicted of a felony, but they were wrongfully convicted and not everybody's going to believe that. Right. So if they say no, a background check will reveal that they're lying. Right. So you're, you're in trouble no matter what. So another thing that I just always assumed is that the exoneree's record would 
automatically be expunged as soon as they were exonerated. Well, I think we've shown that the systems don't work very quickly. Right. Well, <sighs> according to the Innocence Project, it can take up to three to four years oh, that's nice. for a record to get expunged. Right on top of that, Rose. This is on top of <laughs> possible decades that a person has already spent wrongfully imprisoned. And somehow this person is supposed to find a job with a criminal conviction on his record. But it's also on top of he has to or she, they have to get pardoned, which is not automatic. They may not get pardoned. Well, and even if you lie and just say no, they're going to see like, okay, well, where'd where you last work? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. You have a huge gap on your resume. Yeah. How do you explain I that? I worked for 17 years because I was um, wrongfully convicted. On vacation. Yeah. yeah. Like self employed. Like, but also, if you think about it, jobs aren't the only thing that may do a background check on you. If you apply to rent an apartment, a landlord, landlady, land person might not want to appro- approve a convict. Hmm. And it's on your record. Right. Without yeah, a credit. I, I know a lot of jobs don't do the background check. They're just like, whatever. But for apartments and yeah. a bank account, a yeah. car. All the, the things that you need to kind of get on your feet. And without a credit rating... Or job history, getting a mortgage probably is not in the equation getting for exoneration. Hard. Yeah. So maybe Section 8 housing is the way to go. Where's the butt? <laughs> so I talked to my sister about this, the one that I talked about last episode, who's interning or, with it. I think it was a couple episodes ago. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Time is hard. But I talked with my sister about this. She's interning with the ACLU. And she told me that Section 8 housing is out for convicted felons. And as Wait, why? They don't allow convicted felons. I don't know. Ask my sister. Sophie. 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 Answer us. Sauce. Sauce. Let's call her. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So as long as that shit is on your record, this conviction shit is on your record. That's how everybody's going to treat you. Generally, the system sets the exoneree up for failure, which can and does result in homelessness. On top of everything else the person has fucking gone through. And this can lead the exoneree back on a path toward prison. Yeah. It's all part of the prison to poverty to prison to poverty to prison to poverty fucked up and vicious cycle. Like, it's just... Yeah. That's Super the sad. system. So, on a happy note... <laughs> so, the article, How Why Private... Why do I not believe that? Yeah. <laughs> I know. No. I know. It, Guys, this is really, really rough, but I think it's really important that we are telling people about all of the stuff that happens. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it is important because you got if you want to make any changes, you got to shine a light on all the shit that's like not because you don't really think about, you know, once you get out, you're out. Yeah. Not like how hard it is to become like a functioning member of society again. Mm-hmm. There's too many things in place to screw you. To keep you down. Yeah. Yeah. So... The article, How Private Equity is Turning Public Prisons into Big Profits from the Nation, states that, quote, poverty in particular perpetuates the cycle of incarceration, while incarceration itself leads to greater poverty, kind of what Preet was just saying. Mm -hmm. Estimates report that nearly 40% of all crimes are directly attributable to poverty and that the vast majority, 80%, of incarcerated individuals are low income. That's a huge fucking number. That's a huge number. The financial costs of incarceration and the barriers to employment and economic mobility upon release further solidify the link between incarceration and poverty. 
There was a fuck ton of fucked up policies in the 60s and 70s, and by 1985, prisons in 34 states were under court supervision for violating the constitutional rights of prisoners. Oh, jeez. Which is great. 34? It's a lot. Wow. Yeah. It's like, out of how many? I got <laughs> it was there. Like- I got there. It's fine. <laughs> oh, mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to help. Funny. More than half. Doing great. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Math is our strong suit. Oh, God. We are dumb. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Math. Yeah. It is <laughs> tough being pretty, everyone. <laughs> uh, okay. President Ronald Reagan's war on drugs had begun, and its harsh sentencing laws guaranteed a steady influx of newly incarcerated Americans. So, 85 is around the time that I lived in D.C., and crack was a thing. D.C. was the murder capital, gang wars were fucking horrible, and homelessness was on the rise. So, my dad, at that time, was a White House press photographer for UPI, which is, what is United, UPI? It's United Press International. Oh, okay. So, there's, I don't know if it's still around it might still uh, i don't know is that like associated press it's but like photographers yeah okay my dad actually worked for them as well oh, nice. um but for this he was working for upi and every day he was walking into the opulence of the fucking white house like that's yeah. pretty fucking opulent mm-hmm. but in order to do that he'd have to walk around the homeless people outside the white house gates interestingly enough reagan was denying homelessness was a thing around that time well, i always find it weird when people deny that stuff is happening when like yeah. It's quite obviously happening outside or your house. house. Like literally outside your house. Yes. Yeah. So. Allegedly. At the time, my dad took a picture of one of the homeless people on the literal sidewalk outside of Reagan's home. My dad started getting to know some of the regular homeless people he encountered and all his photos were really powerful. And he decided to check out a homeless shelter. He was It was actually recommended to him that he go to a homeless shelter. Oh, like, like one of the people? Mm-hmm. So when my dad got to the homeless shelter with his camera bag, the kids at the shelter surrounded him and they wanted to play with his cameras. So he showed them how to use them. The pictures they took were vastly different to the ones that my father took. They were sort of lighter, had more hope, pictures of their friends playing, like families, that kind of thing. Like just totally, totally different than the ones that my dad was taking from a more serious adult. Right. Well, I mean, if that's sort of been your entire existence and your entire life, like you don't really know any better. So exactly. you, you're not coming from this place of and like, their children. I was somewhere, yeah. right. Like I was somewhere, somewhere and now I'm hopeless. It's, this is my world. These are my friends. Yeah. So my dad ended up leaving UPI and he started a nonprofit called Shooting Back where those kids would take photos, develop the photos, and he and some of the kids would travel the country educating people on the homeless situation. And this after-school program helped the kids steer clear from getting involved with gangs, which was a huge problem in D.C. at that time. I do remember a kid who wasn't in my dad's program all that long and he ended up a victim of murder. I don't know if it was gang-related or not. I was young enough that my dad would shield me from those topics of conversations. But I do think that it's reasonable to think, given the climate, that it's possible that's what happened to that poor kid. I also remember another kid who went through my dad's program who sent my dad an email a few years back thanking, thanking him for helping him stay out of prison. And that's not hyperbole. It's legit where he knew he would have ended up. And he credited my dad and his organization to not ending up there. The cycle can be broken, and arts education can do that. Right. It just takes people to give a shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Reagan ended people up... People out there start giving a shit. Yeah. yeah. 
So Reagan ended up recanting his statement, and I believe it was my dad's work and the tireless work of others that inspired that. The point of this, me telling this fucking personal story, is that at that time, there were folks like my dad in the most powerful city in our nation who were trying to help, who were trying to break the cycle. But the government keeps pushing forward with what's in front of their eyes rather than doing a deeper dive and getting to the root of the issue. And in the long run, it ends up costing people. Okay, so anyway... Anyway, not only does the government have a vested interest in continued incarcerations, a woman named Bianca Tylek, who's the founder of an advocacy group called Worth Rises, which tracks commercial interests in corrections, has cataloged 3,100 companies with a financial stake in mass incarceration. Turns out, putting and keeping people in prison is good for business. It's just a shame it's so bad for people. Everything is terrible. (laughs) Science, science. (gasps) (gasps) So in 2005, Daryl Hunt founded the Daryl Hunt Project for Freedom and Justice, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating the people about criminal justice reform opportunities, advocating for the wrongfully convicted, and providing resources to support individuals who were recently released from prison. Like, what a cool fucking guy. He's giving back. In an article from the Winston-Salem Journal, Michael Hewlett interviewed Daryl Hunt. It was published in 2014. It had been 10 years since Daryl was exonerated. 10 years later, some of the conditioning from nearly two decades in prison were still evident. Daryl would pause before doors with the expectation that they would open automatically just as they did in prison. Hmm. Michael writes that after Daryl would leave the house, And before he returned, he would drive to an ATM. This is very similar to what you were saying earlier about like being scared that something could happen and wanted to like track your movements if you got out of prison. Oh, because there'd be a camera at the ATM. So he would drive to an ATM for the sole purpose of being photographed and getting a receipt. Daryl told Michael, the fear of being picked up for something you didn't do, I never leave out the door without that being on my mind. Daryl also so how told- do you, Oh, that's so yeah. sad. Because you can never relax. Because yeah. you're always like, when is the sh- when's the other shoe going to drop right. again? Yeah. Right. When is something like something that I didn't do going to happen again? Right. Yeah. Daryl also told Michael that he refused to celebrate the anniversaries of his exoneration. He recognized the miracle of the exoneration. Like he was absolutely 100% grateful for it. But as he's quoted as saying, I didn't want to do anything to celebrate. For them, it's a celebration. For you, it's reliving it all over again. Yeah, why would I want to celebrate the fact that, oh, that was 10 years since I got screwed over, since my life was ruined, or 20 years. As we mentioned earlier, reintegrating back into the community can be a challenge. And Michael writes that Daryl's attorney, Mark Rabel, and Daryl became really good friends. Mark had, like... He had stood by Daryl's side for 20 years. Yeah, how could you not be friends with him? Well, yeah, and just, like, absolutely believed in his innocence. But that racial divide about his case hadn't ended just because he was exonerated. As an example, they'd go out to dinner in a more black neighborhood, and Mark said that everyone knew Daryl, loved Daryl. Like, he's part of the community. But they'd go out to dinner in a more white neighborhood, and it would be a little quieter, as he didn't know as many people, or maybe they kept their distance. It has been interesting to me to see that some of these exonerees have moved away from North Carolina, and you talked about that earlier. Or did yeah. you talk about think, that earlier? Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It has been really interesting to note that a couple of the people that we've covered, I don't really want to say who or where they moved to, but they have moved out of state. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I would think like if it were me, I'm like, I'm going to get as far away from these fucking people as possible so they can't do it to me again. Right. I'd want to hide. Right. Because right. you would feel like there's a target. I'd want to like start over, move somewhere quiet, off Clean the grid. Slate. Right. And if people are still thinking that you're guilty. Right. No one's going to ever see you as anything else. Because yeah. especially like as you get older, like you get very set in your ways and your opinions. And if like someone's made up their mind that you're guilty, then no matter what someone says, they're never going to not believe that you're yep. exactly what they think. Because it's not always easy for people to admit that they're wrong. Right. It's so, easier to just believe what you believe. Yeah. Exactly. Like, it's hard to change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is dumb. People should change. That's why people don't change. Because right. it's hard. Yeah. It's right. easier to just like, oh, I'm an asshole. All right, I'm just going to be an asshole. Yeah, 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 exactly. If you don't like it, don't hang out. Don't yeah. hang out with me. Yeah. So, it is possible that it's too painful a reminder for these people to stay in their areas or everything that we've just talked about. But the really cool thing is Daryl opted to stay in Winston-Salem. And he specifically did it because he knew it would make people uncomfortable. I fucking love him. Mm-hmm. And he wanted that. He felt that if people were uncomfortable with a reminder of the injustice that he went through, that maybe it wouldn't happen again. Or it shines like, you know, it's turning the mirror on yeah. people's shitty behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So he was working in uh, justice reform and would spend some times in courtrooms. So Mark, his friend, is quoted as saying, his face was a reminder to the people who put him away. Certain DAs would cross the street rather than face him. Everything would go quiet when he walked into a courtroom. He was in those courtrooms, as mentioned, because he was working on justice system reforms basically from the moment that he was freed. Because in the 20 years that he was rotting away in prison, Daryl was probably dreaming about what he would do when he got out. Probably everybody who's incarcerated does this. Mm -hmm. Not everyone thinks of how they can turn their personal injustice into helping enacting change. And in the same year that Daryl was exonerated, he dedicated his life to reform. He started a nonprofit organization called the Daryl Hunt Project for Freedom and Justice, which we mentioned earlier. In addition to doing that work, Daryl also worked with the Innocence and Justice Clinic at Wake Forest University School of Law, where he helped people get their criminal records expunged. He had public speaking engagements and let law students ask him about his case so they could learn. He joined the board of directors for the Center on Actual Innocence. So that's the center that we know that Chris Muma is the executive director. He helped advocate for the Racial Justice Act of 2009, which was basically forbidding race from being a factor in the pursuit and or imposition of the death penalty. Daryl was doing fucking amazing work. Daryl told the writer from the Winston-Salem Journal that he found hope in talking with young folks because that's where I see the roots of change. It's what kept him fighting and he was working nonstop. He was the type who could never say no at personal risk to his mental health. It seemed like he felt like he was paying something back. Maybe he promised whoever he prayed to that he would dedicate his life in this way and was making good on his promise. Whatever the reason, it was clearly taking a toll on him. There are a number of articles out there that speculate on a lot of what was going on with him. We are purposefully omitting those speculations from our discussion as it's super disrespectful to a man who spent 19 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit and who dedicated his time on the outside to helping others. And frankly, it doesn't fucking matter. Daryl's lawyer and friend, Mark Rabel, is quoted as saying he was the voice of the voiceless who was wounded by 20 years of wrongful incarceration and taking on the burdens of so many people and fighting systems that can't be changed in one lifetime. And on March 13th, 2016, Daryl Hunt completed suicide. So sad. You said completed suicide. Yeah. He he killed himself? Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. 
the preferred term is now completed suicide. It is? Mm-hmm. When did that change? Recently. Oh. wonder why did, did it change leave? from committed? Because committed is like committing murder. It has a negative connotation to it. And when a person completes suicide, it's probably not their first time that they've tried it. Uh, so this time they completed it. But we're not going to end on a sad note. Okay. Because here's the good news about Daryl Hunt. He has an incredible legacy. Because tragically, in North Carolina, young men and women over the age of 16 can be tried as an adult. And if convicted, that person may not be eligible for for financial aid in schools if they get out. And we've learned that when people get out of prison, whether they've served time for crimes they did commit or were wrongfully convicted, they have a lot of issues reintegrating back into society. And it's important to note that a lot of people do change in prison, do want to do and be better for themselves and others. And for many, that means seeking an education. Darrow told friends that education was the key to open opportunity and break the cycle of incarceration. And in 2017, the Daryl Hunt Memorial Scholarship was set up to help provide tuition to those who've been convicted of crimes. Hmm. Awesome. Hmm. Hmm. That's awesome. John, do the rest? Mm-hmm. Daryl Hunt's legacy is fucking awesome. But the reality is he died. And his lawyer and good friend, Mark Rabel, the one constant in Daryl's tragic life where his own mother was murdered and his case was and the case was never solved and the decades spent in prison for a crime he didn't commit. His life was unjust from the get-go. Mark told the Winston-Salem Journal that 19 years of wrongful incarceration is what killed Daryl Hunt. It's really sad. All right. So I'm just going to be honest here. There's no good segue into what I'm going to say next. I'm trying. But the reality is, obviously, Daryl's case really affected me. They all do, but my heart fucking goes out to Daryl's family and friends. With that, we do have to get into the next section, the conclusion. And the fact is, Daryl did get to taste freedom, at least for a moment. In the next episode, we're going to revisit the SBI audit because not everyone on that list got that chance. In the report, citing 230 cases of the crime lab's wrongdoing, seven of the people on that list were sentenced to death, and we'll investigate those cases as well as Death Row itself on the next episode, Death Row is Fucked Up, which it is. You. In the spirit of Daryl Hunt's work, I'd like to do a personal call to action. For a few decades now, my dad has been involved in the same kind of work as his former organization, Shooting Back. He was the creative director of an amazing organization called Venice Arts for years until he retired. The organization gives a much-needed arts education to underserved children. It helps break the cycle. It's effective. And from their site, 100% of our teen participants graduate high school, 95% go on to college, often the first in their families, and most receiving significant scholarships. I've done work with this organization. My dad's longtime partner, Lynn Warshawski is the founder and executive director. They met doing this work in this important field. Their daughter, my sister, is the one interning with the ACLU working toward jail reform. She basically grew up in Venice Arts in the same way that my other sister and I got to grow up in shooting back. So today, personally, I'd like to ask if you have money to spare and want to give to a program that's incredibly important to me and incredibly important full stop, or if you just want to get involved, please go to their site, www.venicearts.org. 
And as always, we'd love for you to join us on our social media, where we'll be posting links to our research, photos, and videos on our Facebook page. You can find us on all platforms, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at Podcast. that's E-F-F-E-D-U-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal, fduppodcast at gmail.com. And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked Up or Effed Up is about helping other people, but in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices of the victims and survivors who have been impacted. If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Done. Effed Up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, Priya Hubbard. Executive Inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott. Social media hall monitors, Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A-L-L-I-E. K-E-L-L-E-Y illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges, executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On-air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, a.k.a. Newman. Additional investigations are provided by cat detectives, Monsieur Hercule Poirot and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Sandra Westervelt and Kim Cook. There was a fuck ton of fucked up policies in the 60s and 70s. It's a lot of fucks. <laughs> so many fucks. <laughs> You're welcome. Fucked in a fucking fucks. <laughs> Fuck you, you fucking fucks. Yep. I had the bumper sticker. Did you? I did. <laughs> my, my little, I think I said this already. My little placard on my desk says, fucker in charge of you fucking fucks. Oh, <laughs> I, love I love it. And I also have like a little dainty like tea set and yes, like, coffee Yes, seen mug. that one. That says eat a dick. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> we should change it. I just have uh, so many of offensive, like, surprise HR hasn't, like. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> There's not usually an HR in TV. <laughs> Hello, HR. <laughs> yeah, they're not I'm right. busy. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. You speak my language. Hi. Okay, bye. Never okay, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>